Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre, with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, a conversation with writer Caroline Frazier. Frazier's Pulitzer Prize and National Book Critics Circle Award-winning book, Prairie Fires, The American Dreams of Laura Ingalls Wilder, was published by Metropolitan Books in 2017. I asked Carolyn Frazier about why she decided to start her book by focusing on a moment of anguish for Laura Ingalls Wilder. Yeah, that uh, always had leapt out at me um, when I became aware of what uh, Wilder at the age of, you know, 57 had written about when her mother died, because it seemed to me that although she'd been thinking about writing about her life in some fashion for a long time, I, I really did feel that that moment was the moment when she um, committed to and recognize that she had these these kind of anguished feelings about having left uh, her family behind when when she and her husband uh, left Dakota Territory. And so it, it just seemed like a pivotal moment when she switched from being a, you know, farm wife and a farmer and a farm columnist and veered off in the direction of writing the the books that would make her famous. Okay, for people who don't know, who was Laura Ingalls Wilder? She was many people. I mean, she lived a, a, a whole number of lives in the course of, you know, her 90 years. I mean, she was born in uh, 1867, just after the end of the Civil War, and she lives to 1957, you know, which is the Eisenhower administration. And so within the the course of that very, you know, nearly a century of life, she begins as a, a child of the pioneers. You know, she's traveling in covered wagons and, and seeing all this uh, amazing kind of frontier experience and, and witnessing the end of the the Plains Indian Wars, and um, and she becomes the wife of a farmer, um, but she takes on all these jobs because they have such a tough time in, in terms of making a living, uh, and, and so tries out all these other kinds of uh, identities, you know, which includes being uh, a columnist for a farm newspaper and a treasurer for the Farm Loan Association, and and gradually grows into this uh, identity as a writer and um, begins telling uh, stories for children. So that I think is is ultimately how we remember her as the author of these eight uh, little house books. But she had a very complicated, long and complicated life. And in terms of her writing, she started writing uh, novelistic writing pretty late. Yes. She was in her 60s when she starts, you know, first she wrote a, a memoir that was not published 
during her lifetime, but became kind of the outline for the little house books. And, and then when that wasn't successful, when she wasn't able to, to sell that to a magazine, which was her original idea, um, she reverted to another notion, which she'd had for a long time, of, of telling stories for children. And I think that, you know, came out of the fact that she uh, had listened to these stories as a child from her father. So she really wanted to memorialize him and to pass on his stories to children. And she'd also told them, you know, to her own daughter. So I think she was totally comfortable with that um, engagement with with children. And you mentioned her daughter. Her daughter played a major role (laughs) in her writing career. And and they played, I guess, a role with each other's career. Yeah, it's a it's a really unusual dynamic because you don't see very many mother daughter writer editor teams of that nature, and um, boy, did they have a you know very fractious and and kind of fraught relationship that only became more fraught when they started <laughs> you know this this whole project and and uh, her daughter. Uh, Rose Wilder Lane was was very well known, much more famous than her mother as a journalist. And, and uh, undoubtedly, these books would not exist without her. I mean, she really pushed her mother to, to do them. I think she always saw the commercial potential uh, in these stories. Um, she had the professional connections. And she also had a real gift for, for editing. So she really, you know, her mother began producing these things that were manuscripts that were uh, not as organized as they could have been in, in a lot of ways in terms of, you know, having a beginning, middle, and end. And, and Rose really came in and took them in hand and started whipping them into shape. And I think Laura, you know, eventually learned quite a lot from her. Now, you know, clearly this is a story about Laura and her mm-hmm. writing. But to me, in reading the book, it almost seems like it's Laura and her daughter. Yeah. <laughs> so it's almost yeah. a dual biography, yeah. in a sense. It did turn out that way, um, because Rose has such an incredible personality. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> everybody keeps saying she's such a piece of work. <laughs> she, she really was. She, was. <laughs> I mean, she, she sometimes, I think, comes to sort of dominate the, the story in certain ways, because Laura was a pretty retiring person in a lot of ways. She was very private, um, except for these little travel diaries. She didn't keep a a journal uh, throughout her life. And so it can be hard to find her voice sometimes. On the other hand, Rose was, you know, constantly writing letters and, and keeping diaries, keeping track of her life. And uh, really telling you what she thought about her mother. <laughs> so well, that, she really comes through. So so that's an interesting dilemma because mm-hmm. if her daughter is pretty open about yeah. her feelings, but her mother is less so, and if she's in her 60s by the time mm-hmm. she's really you know getting herself out there as a writer, how do you find her voice as a, a mm-hmm. biographer? How do you find how she feels? It's one mm-hmm. thing to know how the daughter felt, but what right. about... Laura. Well, in certain cases, we just can't know. And, and I think we just have to sit back and as biographers and, and say, you know, be honest about what we know versus what we don't know. But I do think that Laura's voice does come through really powerfully in her 
manuscripts. Um, so when she starts writing about her life and writing letters to her daughter about these issues that they're struggling with, how to present uh, her father, what to leave out of their uh, story, you start to hear Laura's voice very clearly, and it's a completely different voice than Rose's voice. And I think that that gives us a way to see who's most present uh, in the published books. Mm-hmm. You know, and that leads a little bit into the whole role of speculation in biography. Mm-hmm. How much do you speculate? What are you basing the speculation on? <laughs> right. If you don't really have articles mm-hmm. that can verify the speculation. Right. Well, then you have to try to fill in the blanks in some other ways, I think. And that was a real challenge in writing this biography, was trying to find um, the facts that might flesh out the story a little bit, because there are, in fact, a lot of um, land records and court records. Um, one of the things that I found so kind of heartbreaking was this uh, record of a lawsuit in DeSmet, South Dakota, where a grocery store is suing Almanza Wilder, Laura's husband, for something like $9 or something, you know, an unpaid grocery bill. We don't know all the circumstances behind that, but it's at a point in their life when they're weighed down with all kinds of debts and they're about to lose their land. And so it speaks to the situation that all of these farmers were finding themselves in, that they didn't have the capital to do what they were doing. And so any drought or or problems, you know, with the weather just immediately threw them into a situation where they were going to lose everything. So even those little tiny things that crop up in the historical record, um, whether it's the census or the courts or taxes or whatever, can actually give you uh, a way into describing those kinds of traumas. Mm. And and since her life almost spanned a century, as you said, what about um, archival records? Uh, Did she leave papers? There are a lot of uh, wonderful letters and manuscripts that are still surviving as part of this whole archive, which is now at the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library because Rose wrote the first biography of Herbert Hoover and knew Hoover, and uh, they, of course, shared a lot of uh, political beliefs. But uh, it is an issue, especially with people who come from poverty, because although Laura herself kept everything that she could, you know, she still had the essay that she wrote in high school, (laughs) you know, her original school books, and, Mm -hmm. and there's lots of amazing stuff like that that survives. And yet there are other things like family letters that got thrown out. So it can be an issue. How did Laura's books, um, how were they received when they first came out, particularly the first book? Yeah, the first book was a success sort of right off the bat. It it sold very well for a book during the Depression. Um, And so the publisher was really encouraged by that. Uh, Next book, not so well, Um, Farmer Boy, which was about her husband, but she did have kind of a name, and they just sort of percolated along. Um, and the first book was? first book was Little House in the Big Woods. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
even the, you know, what we now consider the most famous book, the third book, Little House on the Prairie, because it came out during the midst of, of the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression, didn't get as much attention as you might have thought. Um, but by the end of the series, which the last book appeared in 1943, she had become almost more famous than her daughter. She had become very successful. A lot of kids uh, had become completely devoted to the series and were waiting for each new book as they came out. Almost like the Harry Potter. Yeah, phenomenon. it's very, very similar. Wow. So. so for someone who is interested in writing about a writer mm. um, and all aspects of that person, what, what advice would you um, give to that writer? I would say read everything, including the things that maybe people have not paid as much attention to. I mean, one of the things that I was so struck by was reading Rose's sort of more obscure book called The Discovery of Freedom, um, which is a you know very sort of conservative uh, treatise and, and very important to the libertarian movement. Um, and through that book, just reading it, even though it's not a book I like very much, and I don't think it's very well written in certain ways, but it just gave me a totally new view on her and where she was at that point in her life. And um, sometimes I think things become so obvious or well-known or something, we don't pay enough attention to them, but just kind of start at the beginning and 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 read everything. And speaking of um, being surprised by something, was there anything uh, during your research phase when you were looking at Laura's work that surprised you, that you hadn't, didn't know existed, or that you were surprised about her views on anything? Oh, sure. There were a lot of things. Um, one of them was, was that I sort of realized that uh, Rose and, and Laura kind of began being writers at the same time in around 1915 at a time when Rose was heavily involved in yellow journalism <laughs> and that this ended up weirdly influencing both of them because uh, what you see Rose doing at that period is writing these fictionalized celebrity biographies, very unusual and kind of funny uh, things about Charlie Chaplin and Henry Ford. Um, and then this later comes to play a real role in uh, how they conceive of Laura's life, you know, because they're writing it as a fictionalized autobiography, which is uh, weirdly similar to what Rose did earlier. So they just had this very fluid sense of genre that came from that period. Uh, and and that was really startling to me. And just for people who don't know, what is yellow journalism? Yellow journalism uh, came from this circulation battle between uh, Pulitzer and Hearst. It was called yellow journalism because of the great popularity, the, the innovation of color comics, the color comic that 
uh, became so successful was this thing called the Yellow Kid, which was this little kid who wore a yellow nightgown. <laughs> For some reason, this became <laughs> such a huge fad in newspapers that that's what it was called. But of course, it, it now refers to, you know, the sensationalism and kind of salacious uh, crime coverage and and the propensity to just make stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It must be something uh, writing about a writer, looking at a writer's life and you're a writer yourself. Um, how much do you have to really dig to find the real truth? Oh, yeah. And, and that's uh, so much a, a factor in reading Laura's manuscripts because you you start to see all these little asides that she makes, you know, things she's saying to her daughter um, and, and things that are just completely fictitious. Um, the lies she was telling herself about where the family came from and, and, you know, trying to portray them as stable and secure when, in fact, they really weren't. And, and that's sort of a really moving thing to, to come across in her work. And here's Caroline Frazier reading from her book, Prairie Fires, The American Dreams of Laura Ingalls Wilder. If Laura Ingalls Wilder's life was triumphant, and it was, it was a different kind of triumph than we are accustomed to recognizing. She wrote no laws, led no one into battle, waged no campaigns. If we listen to her, we can hear what she was telling us. Life in frontier times was a perpetual, hard winter. There was joy, riding ponies, singing hymns, eating Christmas candy, but it was fleeting. There was heroism, but it was the heroism of daily perseverance, the unprized tenacity of unending labor. It was the heroism of chores, repetitive tasks defined by drudgery cooking and eating the same fried potatoes day in and day out, washing dishes in dirty water, twisting hay with hands so cracked they bled, writing with a blunt pencil on a cheap tablet. Laura Ingalls Wilder was a real person, not only a fictional character, although she lives on in that guise. When you stand in the small town cemeteries where she and her people are buried, you know that they were real. In the silence on the rise in Desmet, on the hill in Mansfield, covered by grass and gray markers, there are real bodies buried in the ground, not images or icons or fantasies. Her voice speaks to us of those people and their feeling for the land. It speaks not about policy or politics, but about her parents, her sisters, her husband, and her love for them. It speaks of her delight in nature, those glorious moments on untouched open prairies watching the geese fly overhead. Our family was dismet, she said simply of those days when they were alone on Silver Lake. She always remembered that place, that moment, quote, a wild, beautiful little body of water, a resting place for the water wild water birds of all kinds, many varieties of ducks, wild geese, swans, and pelicans. Wilder's family was every family that came to the frontier and crossed it, looking for something better, something beyond, 
no matter the cost to themselves or others. But however emblematic her portrait, it was also achingly specific, down to the lilt of the songs they sang and their last glimpse of an intact prairie, the grasses waving and blowing in the wind, the violets blooming in the buffalo wallows, the setting sun sending streamers through the sky. In the end, being there was all she ever wanted. That was Pulitzer Prize-winning author Caroline Frazier, reading from her latest book, Prairie Fires, The American Dreams of Laura Ingalls Wilder, published by Metropolitan Books in 2017. Caroline Frazier's reading and interview were recorded during the Biographers International Organization's annual conference, held in May 2018 at the Leon Levy Center for Biography in the City University of New York's Graduate Center in Midtown Manhattan. You can read more about bio on our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palmer created our theme music. And until next time, thanks for listening and have a great day. <laughs>